you have your Bibles with you, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at a very interesting passage this morning, not to say the rest of the Bible is not interesting, but uh, this is the one that deals with uh, quite a few things that are so important to our daily living in Christ and sometimes are overlooked, and so we hope that we can um, look at these passages carefully this morning. The ones we're going to do in Romans chapter 8 deal with verses 18 through 27, just right before that marvelous Romans 8:28 that we all know and quote and honor and put up on our walls because it's a great verse as well. But it's interesting the verses that precede that, and that's what we want to be challenged with this morning. Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is to have the privilege to shepherd these people. A privilege, Lord, to take your word and to distribute to people who have a heart to serve you. And Father, we would ask and we need, we need your enablement because in and of ourselves, we will not do well this morning. And I would ask, Father, that the Spirit would guide me in a very special way to exegete the scriptures carefully. And, Father, that we would listen carefully with yielded hearts and surrendered hearts and to say, God, teach me. I want to know how to live abundantly this week. I want all that you have for me for your glory. And so, Father, you have set the scene for us. We commit ourselves to you in these moments that lie ahead. In Christ's name, amen. This morning here, you'll notice in my beautiful drawing... uh, I want to start with the big picture here. Sometimes when we're talking, as we do go verse by verse through uh, the books of the Bible, normally that's our procedure. Sometimes, and we've been in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 talking about really sanctification, how God takes us from our new birth in Christ and takes us to the point of glorification. And we've been on that several weeks. So I just want to take a couple moments to stop and say, okay, what's the big picture? You know, let's not get lost in the verse itself or the verses itself. It's kind of like if you can just imagine in your mind that you take a puzzle of any size and you just take one piece and you look at it, you'd say, well, what's the big picture? And you would say, I don't know. You could, it could be anything from this one piece of puzzle. I need all of it to see the big picture. And sometimes we, we need to do that when we're going at a length of time in a particular passage to say, okay, let's stop. How do these verses this morning fit the big picture so that I understand it with that type of clarity? So the big picture this morning would be starting all the way back in Genesis and say, what was God's original design? And his original design that all of creation would be for his glory. Everything that God does, everything that he created in the universe in creation of the angelic beings, in the creation of humanity. He did it for His glory alone. That's pivotal to our culture today. Because, as you well know, everything is designed for me and for you. And God sits in the heavens and He's there for me. And any time I need Him, I can cry out and He's always Johnny on the spot. That is not the teachings of Scripture. That's a another cultural rendition of how we understand God. And it's not a valid, it's not a good understanding at all. It's a very distorted one. God does care for us, and he wants to be a part of our lives, and he is a part of our lives as believers. 
But Paul writes some significant things that we need to understand. So number one is Christ created the universe for his own glory. The universe in and of itself is to display. It is just to do explode with God's glory and splendor and power and intellect and all that God is and his attributes. God created the universe to do that. It was solely for His glory. He created the angelic beings primarily that they would be those worshipers around the throne of God, around His place in the heavens. And He created them for His glory. And then He came to humanity and He created us again for His glory. So you can say, well, did He create everything, the universe, angelic beings, humanity? For His glory, yes. It's that simple. And one of the marvelous things about God is that we understand that God permitted, for His own reasons, He permitted corruption to come in to His creation. Lucifer was the archangel of the angelic beings. And there came that time when Lucifer, the archangel, wanted to be as God. Pride filled his life. And he rebelled against God, and God shoved him out of heaven. He could no longer stand in the presence of God because he had done evil. And because of that evilness, it was his intent then to destroy everything that God had created. He wanted to destroy creation. He wanted to destroy humanity. And so we find in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan comes. Lucifer's name is also Satan. And so Satan comes and he tempts Adam and Eve and they fall for it. And so Adam and Eve sin. They rebel against God because they wanted their way, not God's way. They wanted to be gods themselves. They wanted things to be for their glory, not for God's glory. So what we find here in the, in the beginning, and this piece of the puzzle fits very well with this, is the fact that the universe becomes corrupt. Sin does a number on the universe. It does a number on the angelic beings. And among the angelic beings, now there were some who followed Satan. They become the fallen angels. And those fallen angels, are those who fell, are condemned forever. There is no redemption for them. So it is already established there are a set number of good angels and a set number of fallen angels. And there is no redemption. When Christ died, he did not die for the sins of the angelic beings. Mankind, Adam disobeys. And at that point of Adam and Eve rebelling against God, what happens is that God pronounces a curse. He curses the universe. He says, now the creation will not be able to display my glory as was my intent. Now there are thorns and there's weeds. And he pronounces that curse early in the latter part of chapter 3 and throughout the rest of Scripture. You also are, we are very well by experience as well as knowing from the Scriptures that sin, God cursed Adam. Now he's going to have to work and toil because of a corruption in the universe. And the curse on Eve would be pain in childbirth. And so now we find all that God has created now is in chaos. And we experience that. We experience personally as human beings. Angels experience it. The universe is corrupt as well. There are disasters. There are floods. There are tornadoes. 
God did not have in his original design for all those things to occur. The ground does not produce as it should. Man works hard, and yet he never fully accomplishes his work. And so we see that throughout the Scriptures, God is displaying for us and telling us and proclaiming to us how things really are. And we see that. So God's intent then becomes this. For mankind, for the universe, he desires a rebirth. He desires that creation be restored even better than it was. We're going to see that this morning. For mankind, God desires a rebirth. If any man be in Christ, he is a new what? He is a new creature. He has been reborn. That's the new birth. We say born again. So we begin to see God, very clearly, God's design of this rebirth. Angels are not redeemable. You say, why is that? I don't know. That's just what God says. So there's a rebirth here, there's a rebirth here. And the interesting part of this, then, is that the universe cannot correct itself. Mankind cannot correct himself. The universe cannot do this in and of its own initiative. It has not the enablement to do that, obviously. Neither can mankind save himself. He may reform himself, but it will never last. He cannot be reborn by his own initiative. So the graciousness of God, and this is the wonder, I think the wonder of it all, is the fact is that God says, I need to do this, and I'm going to come and be a part of that. I'm going to live within fallen humanity. So what God does, He comes and He restores, He rebirths man. He lives within man by His Spirit, and He enables us, to even be more of a glory to Christ than even in Adam and Eve in that original creative act. We will find that the Scripture is very clear that the universe itself will flourish again as God intended. And even greater than that, God will create a new heavens and a new earth. Now, all of that information in and of itself plays within our text. And that's the reason why I wanted to take a few moments and just build that because that's pivotal to the verses we're teaching this morning. We're going to see this process. Anything that God desires to be good, and obviously he desires all things to be good, it must take his involvement. That's the thing. He never says to man, these are good things for you to do. God becomes actively involved. He actively has to create a new universe a new heavens, and a new earth. He actually has to rebirth you. It is God that does that. Man cannot do that in himself. We don't journey in life and say, oh, I want to be rebirthed. Okay, God, come and rebirth me. It's nonsense. Because man does not have that enablement. He's not God. It takes God to rebirth a person, a born-again experience as we're so often reminded of. So, how does that take place? At point in time, just, we've been looking at this quite often, but it's the orderliness of salvation. It's just a sequence, not necessarily a time sequence. Even though we do understand that God chose, He elected individuals from before the foundations of the world, He called them, after the electing of them, He calls them, then He regenerates them, 
He converts them. We call it conversion. You and I experience this. This all happens in a many second in that, in that understanding. God rebirth. This is John 3, 3. We are born again. He's told that to Nicodemus. I immediately experience what God has done because I have the desire, I have the passion to repent. You don't have to force me to repent. I have a willingness to say, yes, I want to turn. I, I not only want God to <clears throat> forgive me of my sins, I desire God to enable me to turn from my sin. I want to get as far away from my sinful life as I can possibly get. That's my desire. Do I do that the first day? No, nobody does. But that's my desire. That's my intent. That's the reason why you and I depend upon the Spirit of God that dwells in us. And they, I want to get away from sin. What born-again Christian here this morning it says, I want to live in sin. And I know John, 1 John 1, 9, and when I do sin, I'll just say, all right, Lord, I admit that. I confess that. What truly born-again believer can honestly say, I really enjoy sinning? Now, do we sin? Yes. Do we enjoy it? God forbid. Paul says that twice. God forbid that that would be my motivation, that would be my intent. Because true regeneration is, it is evidenced by repentance and faith, trust, reliance upon Jesus Christ and Him alone. Not this church, not me, nobody, not the Pope, not the President. Not Billy Graham. My trust is solely is in the reliance upon Christ and Christ alone. Not Christ plus anything. Not Christ plus my works. Not Christ plus my baptism. Not Christ plus my membership. It's Christ and Christ alone. And when that is understood and when that is heard because of regeneration, we don't really debate that. We just say, yeah. That sounds, yeah, I see it from Scripture. That's good. The moment that these things are occurring, God says because of His work, not our work, but because of His work in us, He declares us right with Him forever. That's called justification. Being declared right with God. Only God can make that declaration. It's not based on what I've done, not based on what I will ever do, it is not based on what I have done. It is done upon the sacrificial work of Christ and Christ alone and his death, burial, and resurrection. At, the, at that same moment, we are adopted into his family. We become the children of God. John 1.12 explains that to us. We now are become the children of God. We're the sons of God. Now, from our perspective today, this is all past tense. That's not going to occur. That's not continuing to occur. That has occurred. It is over. It is done. It'll never be done again. This is part of our understanding of our assurance. Because it doesn't depend on me. It depends upon a faithful, trusting, loving God. And he says, this is what I have done. The same as physically, as Nicodemus said, What do you mean about being born again? Can I go back to my mother's womb? That was a natural question for him. Obviously, that's not what Jesus was talking about. He says, you're now born from above. You've been born physically. We all have been born physically. Now you've been born above. Now, specifically here, understanding then, as we said here today, all of this has been done. It is complete. It's been done by the power and the mercy of God. We understand that 
God now has put His nature in us. This is God's nature in us. His Holy Spirit resides within it. We become the temple of God, the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So there is this nature, this divine nature. We don't become God, but His life is in us. We understand that from several passages. Now, outwardly, my behavior... The first day, the first week of being born again may not have a lot of evidence of that. I still may be struggling doing the things I've done prior to that. But inside, this begins to work, and I begin to say, this doesn't feel right to do anymore. This just doesn't seem right. We begin to clear up our habits that God's not pleased with. The Holy Spirit begins to convict us, and we'd say, yes, I no longer want that in my life. This is just natural. It's not some super Christianity. It's just the natural result of what has occurred by God and God alone. Therefore, all praise is unto Him. I can't praise anything. Neither can you. It is all praise to God. He has come and said, if this is going to be restored and made new, even better than the original creation, then it is I, God, will send my Son... And I must do that work in fallen humanity, those in which God enables this to occur. So my behavior now begins to change little by little. We, can, we sin, we acknowledge that, we confess it, 1 John 1, 9, yes. And our behavior begins to change. Now the outside begins to look more like the inside. That's called Christ-likeness. And that continues on until Christ comes, or we go to be with Him, and now that divine nature that lives within us, Christ's life, now our behavior all at once, at the coming of Christ, the glorification of our bodies, which releases us from the sin that we have had, now we look like Christ. We don't become Christ. But our nature and our behavior is identical. Now, God says, I want you to understand how we begin here with a born-again believer and we arrive here. What will this process of sanctification look like? It is God who is going to sovereignly orchestrate all of life for us to be conformed to Christ himself. This is a glorious Day. Now, if you would, come with me to the passage. I would just suggest as a big point, not the big picture, but the big point, is this. The major thing that God is going to do in our life, because it's not heaven, is that we are going to experience suffering. That suffering can be in the likeness of physical suffering, mental suffering, psychological, emotional, loss of job, broken down new car. All of those things that just really bug us to death. That's not to say there are not some good times. But God primarily orchestrates these circumstances to get us to
to focus on him and him alone so that he can develop his character. It's all about God. God says, you have my nature, and I'm going to orchestrate sovereignly all the events of your life personally so that my nature becomes reality in your behavior. And when I come, I'm going to highly exalt you as Christ is highly exalted. We read last week, we are heirs with God. We are his children. And we are co-heirs with Christ. God treats us the same. We're adopted sons, yes. Christ isn't. We are adopted into his family because of these elements that has already transpired. This never changes. We will always be adopted sons of his. That never changes. Now, when we look at verse 17, which is actually the last verse that we studied last week, we read this. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Think of that of it on a physical level as a parent and your children. Most children would say, what's it been like to live in your father and mother's home? And you would probably somewhere come up in that list, pure suffering. They give me times to come in. They give me curfews. They tell me what I can eat and I can't eat. They tell me where I'm going to go to school. They're telling me they're going to pick out my college. If I want them to pay for it, they're going to pick it out. If I want to pick it out, I can pay for it. It's just a lot of suffering. They may use some other terms for that. God does the same. Why? Because he loves us. <laughs> the same reason you do for your children. Because you say, I have the experience. I know more than my children. And therefore, they need my advice and they need my guidance. I sense that as a child of God. I can't do it. I'm not as wise as my Heavenly Father. I need His guidance. Sometimes it's, I see it as painful, and it is. Sometimes I just say, God, why this now? Like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Father, will you remove this thorn in the flesh? I'm an apostle. I'm a good guy. I'm not perfect, but I'm one of your apostles of Jesus Christ. Certainly you'll listen to me. The answer comes back what? No. This is not best for you. My mercy, my grace is what? Sufficient. This is part of what it takes, Paul, for me to develop you into the person that you are now. And that's the same for everyone I'm sitting here today. And this is exactly the text, okay? Why suffering? You and I live in a world of corruption. Because of Adam's sin. When Adam sinned, it affected everything. The earth is cursed. As I mentioned, man is cursed. Angels, there are fallen angels. Everything is subject to decay. Our bodies are failing us. You look at creation. We see rottenness and corruption. And we see trees decaying. We see all the disasters from a fallen, corrupted world. Now notice in verse 18. Paul here is going to elaborate on the statement that he just made about suffering. Notice in verse 18, For I consider, I take into account, would be another way we, Paul would say this, For I take into account that the sufferings, 
painful circumstances, health issues, persecutions by some in the world today, loss of jobs, personal conflicts. You're sitting here perhaps today and saying, one of those is mine. That's going on in my life right now. What do I do with my sufferings? Well, I cry out to God to deliver me. God has a better way. And if God desires to heal, he can do that. Just like that. And he can do it. And it's not wrong to say, Lord, if it would be pleasing to you, I'd like to be delivered from this. And God may. And by God's wise understanding, we would say, no. Or not now. And you and I as his children say, Lord, you know what is best. Now watch this. That the sufferings of this present time, the sufferings of Sunday, May the 15th, whatever they are in your life, in my life, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. They are not to be considered of such value as to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, let's say that again. The sufferings are not worthy. They are not worthy to be compared, not worthy to be focused on. When I'm sick, I'm focused. I'm focused on my wife's well-being. No, that's not true. I'm focused on my well-being, and I want her to know that she also ought to be focused on my well-being. And I want the church to focus on my well-being because it's all about what? Me. God says, no, it's all about me, your God. And that is the process that I have chosen at times, and it certainly is a big contributor to this process. I use the sufferings to bring you, and I tell you, I want you to focus on this, the result of your suffering, not upon the suffering. Now, if it's something of normal health, take an aspirin, ibuprofen. You might have to have hip replacement, knee replacement. All right, fine. Thank you for the medical advances, right? But God's going to use all of that. So he's saying, do not take your sufferings and count them as such a focus that you forget about this. And all I'm doing is crying and weeping and and saying, God, I don't like this, and this is not fair, and God, I've served you for 120 years, and this shouldn't be a part of after all I've done for you. We kind of have that mentality sometimes. In fact, to be honest with you, we have it most of the time. Focus on the present sufferings. Focus not on them. But focus on that which this is going to produce. God says, when you get here, when I exalt you as my son, my child, you will say, wow. That was tough. There were some tears. But it was worth it all. You'd say, well, what is it? God doesn't tell us. He's wise. He just says, this is an exaltation that you can't believe. In fact, don't focus on this. Focus on your exaltation that I have for you. Now, there's three verses just very quickly. They're short verses, but I just want to tie these in so that we get a good understanding of what Paul was saying here to the Romans. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, For momentarily, for momentarily light affliction, there's 
doesn't always seem light to me. For momentarily, light affliction is producing for us, get this, God is producing on our behalf, for our benefit, an eternal weight, an eternal value, something that will never go away. This is, you're investing in something that's eternal, an eternal value of glory, of splendor, far beyond all comparisons. Does God understand what's beyond all comparisons? Yes, because he's omniscient. Now think of this. This process, this process that we seldom ever talk about, we seldom have books about. Everybody is saying, we was talking this morning in one of our adult classes, we're talking about everybody focuses on born again, born again, boring, and that starts there and that's beautiful. The problem is that's all we're concerned about. I'm born again, I'm going to heaven. You'd say, well, what about this? I never heard of that. And I'm not really stretching that very much. This is past. This is future. What is it today? It's this. That is our major focus. It's God's major focus. People say, what is God doing? I'll tell you, that's what he's doing. Most of the New Testament scripture is written about this. When's the last time you consistently heard a body of believers? This is in any church. What are we going to pray about? Well, let's pray about people who are sick. That's okay. That's fine. That's biblical. Let's pray about people being born again. And somebody says, well, let's pray about sanctification. Wouldn't that go over well? Seriously now. You haven't heard that very many times, have you? Normally, people in Christianity would say, what is that? Never heard of that. Why would we pray for sanctification? Because it's not about our birth. It's already occurred. Do you rejoice in your children developing into mature adults? Or do you sit around and show pictures of their birth for 18 years? No. You show, you say, wow, this is when they were two. This is when they were two in one day. And this is when they were two in ten days. And we go all the way up to 18. Because we just rejoice in their growth. We rejoice in their development and in their maturity. This is a wonderful fact. But it's a fact. We may have a film of it, okay? But this is what we glory in and rejoice in. Just think of our Heavenly Father. What does He rejoice in? Yes, He rejoices. He did this. And He is doing this. This He rejoices because He knows the end result is is that we will be exalted like His Son. That's the marvelous grace of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... Christ ever suffer? Obviously, yes. Did he suffer physically? Did he suffer emotionally? Yes, yes, yes. Did he suffer sin? No, he didn't. But the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing in the sufferings of Christ so that, here's the purpose clause, so that also at the revelation, at the unveiling of Christ's glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. There's more to it than saying, wow, to the glory of God, yes. But God says, oh, what I have in store for you. I will exalt my God's work 
in this process. How well are you and I surrendering our lives to that work? That's developing the capacity to say when Christ comes and he reveals all of his splendor, you know what he wants to do? He wants to take a Brock. He wants to take a Vernon. He wants to take a Nancy. And he says, look what I have done. Look what only I could do. Look what I have done. That is the exaltation. What is our response is, Lord, it was all you're doing. And it is all for your what? Glory. Think of that, my friend. That day when Christ exalts you with himself because you have surrendered, you've become a slave of Christ, and you say, God, I die to self that you may glorify yourself through this process. Isn't that great? And everything that occurs, God sovereignly, nothing happens to you or me that God is not right on the spot saying yes, yes. He may not be the creator, but he is the one that gives consent. As he did with Job. Satan, you can do anything to Job you like. Because God's understanding and God's process was to create this in Job, in the Old Testament. But I tell you what, you have a limit. You cannot take his life. Now, all the things that happened to Job, did God purpose and create that to happen from his own hand? No, he permitted it. But he guided and he governed over, just like he does your life and my life today. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. There it is. We are now children of God. We are sons of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. So don't ask. We know that when He, Christ, appears, we will be like Him. We will not be Him, but we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We will be exalted as He is exalted for His own what? Look at verse 19. Paul states, let me share, Paul is saying basically to his readership, let me share with you regarding creation. It's not a rabbit track. He's going to say, okay, remember, this is corrupted too. Let's take a look at how that is going to be restored because it has a lot to do with our understanding of how God's doing it in our life. So, let's take a look at it. Verse 19, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. It has an enormous desire to express creation, like it's animated in that sense. Obviously, it's not a being. But he's, God's intent and God's design is to take creation, and he wants it just to explode with God's glory, but it can't do that because it has a curse upon it by God because of sin. But he says, just take it as if creation itself says. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. For the revealing of the sons of God. Where's that? This is at the second coming of Christ. This is when he comes in all of his glory. At his first coming, he came as a babe. 
as Savior. In His second coming, He comes as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Now look at this. Creation longs eagerly to explode with God's glory again, for the curse to be removed. And this will occur for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. Creation didn't vote. Creation didn't do anything. Creation was the result of Adam's sin. Notice how clear he says that. Not willingly, but because of him. Because of God who subjected it to the curse because of Adam's sin. So, Adam is responsible. I'm responsible. You're responsible. Creation is just the result of what we have done. He makes a point of that. So he says, for the creation was subjected to futility. It could not any longer accomplish its purpose that God had given to it. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What is hope? In hope. Is it, I hope, I'm going to get out of here before one or earlier. I don't know where we are or not. Still questionable. I have high hopes. I hope I get a better job. I hope this will really happen. That's not the hope the Bible talks about. Hope is confident expectation. I do not see it. I have no evidence of it as far as handling it or seeing it in its reality. But I have confident expectation based upon what God has said. I know. I know it is true. I have confident expectation. So he says, in hope, verse 21, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free. It will be released from its bondage to sin, from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When we are fully glorified, when Christ comes, then earth, nature, universe will explode for the glory of God. The Old Testament is full of verses in which it says, that even in the deserts, as we know them today, they will flourish. There will be no hunger. This earth will produce as it was intended to. And when Christ comes back, he will establish his millennial kingdom, and the earth will be refurbished. But there's still another step for creation, which comes at the end of the millennium. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But even at this time, there is an enormous difference for that thousand years that Christ rules and reigns. Carefully now in verse 22. For we know, we absolutely intuitively know that the whole creation groans and suffers. In that sense, right now, creation, because it's under the curse, it groans. It suffers. What does it suffer? It suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, why would the Spirit of God have Paul to insert childbirth? Where does that come from in this text? Because normally a woman says, husband, you have no idea. So take an aspirin and forget it. Get over it. Right? But most women tell me 
that as painful as childbirth is, but it's all for the joy of the birth, right? It's the joy of seeing that birth of a child and to say, it was worth it. That's the reason why Paul inserts that here. Because he says, the pains of childbirth, what comes next? What comes next is that which makes it worth it all. And he uses this term. Creation experiences the pain of corruption. Yes, it is likened to the pain of childbirth. And it will be taken away at the second coming of Christ, at his revelation. And so even creation today, in all of its corruption, it will end. And he says, this is when God's going to do his great work with the universe. And then he says, and not only this in verse 23, but also we ourselves. Not only this regarding creation, but don't forget, see, he's bringing it back to us in our glorification. But also we ourselves, believers, having the first fruits of the Spirit. For those of you who know your Old Testament, you'll notice this was a big deal with the Jewish people under the law of Moses because when they had harvest, it was an agricultural, mainly an agricultural society. And so when vegetation came in, for instance, when apples, I assume, came to harvest, and they would, they would take the harvest, they would, they would select by their own decision what they considered to be first fruits, just out of honor to God. Whether it was one bushel that was given to the priesthood, or two, or three, or whatever it may have been. That was known as the first fruits, which meant there is more fruit to come. It's just the first fruit. Our first fruit that tells us there is more, much to come, is that he gives us of his Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, who enables us to be able to see this accomplished. Now, he says, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Without the Spirit dwelling within us, obviously that would be impossible. Now, notice the next statement. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. There are deep concerns and there are circumstances, adverse circumstances. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Say, I thought I already was adopted. Yes. But here he says what? The final installment of adoption is that here you will have the redemption of your body. That is, it will once for all be rid of Adam's sin. You and I, before we were saved, obviously were controlled by Adam's sin. Christ saved us, rebirthed us, we became new creation. Even though Adam's sin does not have the power over us, we have the propensity to be tempted, and sometimes we yield to it. But when we come to this final installment as the sons of God, as the children of God, it will be the redemption of your body. He says that's the finality. When your body will be free forever of sin and all of its corruption, here it is. 
You wait eagerly. We're waiting eagerly to be free of the sin that lives within us. And at this second coming is all going to be all of that exaltation. My body will be a resurrected body. It'll be a new body. It'll be free of sin and disease. It'll be all that God intended from the very beginning and even better than that. In verse 24 then, how will life ever be better? Life is better at this point. And it gets better. Now the world looks at that and says if that's the kind of God that treats his children as through suffering, I don't want it. Why? Because they don't have this. You see, when Christ redeems us, saves us, rebirths us, and gives us of his Holy Spirit, now our eyes are open and we say, yeah, I get it. That's necessary for God to cause me to depend on him. And even though it's painful now, I don't focus on that as I focus on, wow, the exaltation that will be there when Christ is exalted. We will be with him as the sons. And we will have a new body. So, Lord, I am thankful, even in the midst of the circumstances, the suffering of the present time, but they are not to be focused on. This is what is to be focused on. In verse 24, for with hope or in hope, for with hope we have been saved. We have been delivered from the penalty of our sin, and we're free from the power of that sin. We're not free from the presence of it yet, but we will be at his coming. For in hope or for with hope we have been saved. We have this confident expectation of a better life. This is his point of hope, confident expectation of a better life. For instance, John 10.10, Jesus makes a marvelous statement. I have come that you might have what? Life. And that you might have it more what? What do I think about abundant life? I'll tell you what I think about. If I keep my mind off the scriptures, here's what I think about it. Wow, great. Now, I'll be free of this and free of that and free of the boss and I'll get a better job. All i got to do is pray. Oh, man, this abundant life, it is just one vast vitality of life without any problems. Any Christian here today agree with that? No, but I heard that all, I've heard that all my life. Why is this fantastic? God gives you abundant life. Now, maybe they meant different, but they didn't explain it. And what I got out of that is, fact is, wow, yeah, I guess this would be great. It's going to be heaven on earth. Wow, I, I just speak words, and God just does this, and he does that. And, you know, and uh, wow, it's just going to be tremendous. I, I, no. That is abundant life. That is life-changing. That's the life. Christ said, now you have eternal life. It's always God's working in us and through us to conform us to be like Him. And then it continues, but there is that point when now we are glorified, we drop off the presence of sin, 
And we are redeemed forever and exalted as the sons of God. But I have to realize that abundant life today is this process. What God is doing, what God is doing in this sanctification process, this is the abundant life. Sure it is, because it's taking me from here to here. But my unsaved friends are saying, oh, you mean if I get saved, it'll heal my marriage, I'll get a better job, and all of these things? Why, yeah, I'd be stupid not to accept Christ. And Satan has now done one of his better works. Because some unintended, probably, but foolish Christian has said, if you'll just trust Christ, he'll solve all your problems. That's just not true. It's not in Scripture. He'll solve your problem of being controlled by sin, yes. But folks, you and I acknowledge more problems now, perhaps, than we ever did before. Because we see that everything around us is corrupted and we're corrupted. And so the Scripture is bold in its intent to say, this is abundant life. And you know what? You and I as a believer say, yes, I can see myself being transformed. Oh, yeah, the circumstances are difficult, but I can see my... I I even like myself better. Over the 40, almost 40 years here, I I can look out today and I can see... I, I knew you the first time you came to church. You may have been beautiful in appearance, but inside you were ugly, just like me. And I see that transformation. I've seen you gone through cancer. I've seen some of you go through divorces. I've seen you go through children who died not in maturity, but as a child. And all of that has just blossomed you into the character of Christ. That is the light to the world. The world just says, I just don't get it. Why? How can this occur in your life? And you are committed to it. And you'd say, yes, it's worth it all. Oh, yes, I focus on this. My unsaved friend, what do you focus on? And the reality of that, my friend, is that one day Christ will say to you, in Revelation chapter 20, depart from me, I never knew you. That is not something to look forward to. This is. And it's a certainty. It's a certainty. For in him we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. I, I don't, I can't realize what all this is about. I hear the word exaltation as the sons of God. I, I, I understand, but I don't understand what all of that is. And that's the reason why we have a confident expectation. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? In verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, perseverance means bearing up, I do not give up, I will not surrender to the flesh, I will only surrender to Christ. I persevere, that means that we hang in there, is another way of just in our modern lingo to say it. Now, for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for this full sanctification process, which is the glorification, the redemption of our bodies. Now, quickly, verse 26. In the same way, you'd say, that's marvelous. (laughs) I tell you, sometimes I don't know how to pray. 
I don't know how to go about it. I just feel so helpless. I, I understand the Holy Spirit lives within me. I understand I'm in union with the Trinitarian God. And I, I, I get all of that. And I love this. And I'm looking forward to that. But sometimes I just, I don't know what to say. Look what God says. In verse 26, in the same way, as you're persevering, remember, the Spirit also helps. The word there is, He joins us in our weaknesses, in our limitations to persevere. When we just feel like giving up at times, when we just feel like, let it go. Our limitations. He helps us. He joins us in our limitations for we do not know how to pray. Lord, I don't know how to pray about this. I'm not sure what is best. And it's not in Scripture. I can't go to chapter and verse and say, do this or do that. I just don't know. I feel so helpless. I want to honor you. I don't want to be a dishonor. The Spirit also helps our weaknesses for we do not know how to pray as we should, but... The Spirit Himself intercedes for us. It's present tense. He never stops interceding. I never, as a believer, ever have to say to God, would you please intercede for me? The text here is, He is always interceding for His what? Children, you and me. He never stops. That's 24-7. He's always interceding for us with groanings also to... He understands. He associates. He knows our groanings. With groanings too deep for words. And He... You may want to put this in the margins there. He refers here to the Spirit. But He, the Spirit, intercedes, continually does so for the what? The saints. Let me go back to verse 27. (laughs) I think I read that wrong to you. And He, the Father who searches the heart, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Does God know everything that needs to be known? Yes. Therefore, in 27, He, the Father, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Does He know the other person of the Trinity? Yes. He knows perfectly the mind of God the Spirit, for He is God the Father. Because He, the Spirit, intercedes continually for the saints according to the will of God. One of the difficulties, my friends, is tragically, this isn't, this isn't exciting enough. That's the tragedy of our modern-day Christianity. Somebody gets saved, whippy, shout, have a celebration, and that's fine. Let's do it. But let's continually have a celebration and talk about God changing us into his likeness. And so we have an enormous decision in our fellowship. Whether our focus is going to be culturally on this and this And to say, let's just get through it. Perhaps God will come quickly, and he could. Do we want God to come quickly because of our exaltation or to get me out of this mess? And that will tell you something about your Christianity. 
that will tell you that will tell me exactly where I'm at in my relationship with God. And that is a big deal because that's past, this is future. God says, you only have one thing, my son, to focus on, and that's your sanctification. That's a choice, isn't it? That's a huge choice to do the work of God. Well, as we said in the beginning, the big point is suffering produces the capacity to share. What kind of capacity do I want when Christ comes again? Don, you slept through most of it. You were whining and crying, and it really wasn't important. You only read the Bible when somebody was dying, or you were in big trouble. But Brian over here, he wasn't a pastor. He didn't know all that you knew. But man, he just kept growing and growing and growing. And when I come to glorify myself and glorify myself in the saints, wow, what an exaltation. Folks, we've really got to think about that. This is what is a light to the world. And without this, the world says, why should I be a Christian? I don't see anything different. Oh, yeah, you go to church. And you pray at the table, which are fine. That's all they see. If I was an unsaved person, and I'm glad I'm not, it wouldn't affect me either. And it doesn't affect our world. May God help us. Many of you are doing that, and you're changing your world around you. Why did God say to the Roman believers, what was he saying to those at Rome through his letter? Don't focus on your sufferings. And they were. Persecution was rampant. Don't focus on this. I know you're going through it. I'm in control. I didn't say I'd deliver you from it. But focus on when I come. Focus when I exalt you in my exaltation. What's the timeless principle for the world of believers? The present sufferings are not to be compared with the exaltation that awaits you in Jesus Christ. I ask myself the question, am I focusing on my present sufferings, my present circumstances? Is that what I talk at the office about to my unsaved friends? how tough life is. There are talk about, I as a Christian have the same pain you do, the same stress you do. Oh, but I glory. I have confident expectation it will be worth it when Christ comes. Are you confident that you will be exalted when Christ comes? Well, that's probably the biggest decision you're going to make today or any day. Let's pray. Father, only you know perfectly the course of church history. But Father, as many of us here today know, we are in tremendous difficulties. 
because we have turned Christianity upside down and made it about us rather than you. Forgive us for using you to make our life easy. Forgive us for our apathy as we confess that. And Father, help us to realize that you had every right as a sovereign God to walk right on by any of us here this morning and drop us into an eternal damnation. Because we have sinned, we deserve it, there's nothing we can do about it. And yet, you chose to live in us. You didn't give us orders to change. You came into our very being with your spirit and change us and just said, surrender to me. I will do it. Surrender to me. I will give you the desire to will and to do of my good pleasure. Just surrender. You don't have to have a backpack. You don't have to have a power pack. You're my child. I love you. I died for you. I want you to die to self that I may show you real life. So, Father, this very hour, we need again to consider the cost of discipleship. Father, we need people who will go out of this auditorium and they will begin to talk about this at work, talk about it with their families, talk about it with their relatives. If we really care, then we will talk about it and live it. There is no time nor room for excuses. It is what it is. You are a gracious, loving God. And so, Father, now in this auditorium, every human being here will make a decision to slumber through this week, to be radically changed by your grace and mercy, or to reject you for an eternity. That's just the hard facts, Father. We know that. And so in these few seconds that remain, we will make our decision. And you will know what it is. We worship you. We exalt you. We give you everything. Our worship is simply to say, Lord, I desire nothing else but to please you. My life is yours. Lord, if there would be a person here today that you have prepared their heart, even as they were coming today, as they interacted with the word today, and they would say, I really want that. How, do, how does it start? May they simply say, Father, I put my trust, my confidence, it is Christ who is Savior alone. I understand that there is not Christ plus something else. And I not only want you to, to forgive my sins, which you have promised to do, I don't want them anymore. I don't even want to be around them anymore. I want to walk away from everything that's displeasing to you. I don't know how. I've never experienced that to this point, Lord. But yes, that's my heart. You've given me the desire to be like that. And so I want to thank you for saving me. And right now, I tell you, I surrender my life to you. And so, Father, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is in his name and for his glory. We give you thanks. Amen.